And so, Jesus, we pray that we would hear you speaking, that you would preach, and if you want to use my body to do it, that's great. Use all of us, Lord, to speak and to hear your word. Father, thank you that your word is good. In Jesus, we know that. Amen. Hey, well, last week, Kathleen preached a great sermon. The week before that, it was Easter. The week before that, it was Palm Sunday. So it was four weeks ago that we last preached a sermon out of our expository series on the Revelation. And so I need to remind you uh, where we were and where we are now. Revelation chapter 10. In Revelation chapter 10, all seven seals on the scroll have been opened. Six of the seven trumpets have sounded. Uh, trumpets uh, proclaiming uh, the judgment of God that is the atonement of God that is the announcement that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and you remember those seven trumpets were blown right outside the walls of Jerusalem or Jericho before all the, the walls came tumbling down Jesus was crucified right outside the walls of old Jerusalem he is the judgment that makes atonement and he is the king of the kingdom that is always at hand. Jesus is crucified on the sixth day of creation, the sixth day of the week, the sixth hour of the day. In Revelation 10, the sixth trumpet has sounded and the seventh is about to sound. The seventh trumpet is the last trumpet. St. Paul wrote this, Behold, look, I tell you a mystery, a mysterion. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Well, Christ has been raised. And the seventh trumpet, at the seventh trumpet, we will all be raised in him. He is the, the resurrection. So we live in the days of the seventh trumpet call to be sounded. We live in the time of the end, according to Scripture. When and where eternity is constantly invading time. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Revelation 10 and 11 is an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet. It's about here and now, right now, where we live. Revelation 10, verse 1, what we preached on last time. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow, the sign of the covenant, over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion, roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more chronos, no more time. But in the days of the seventh trumpet call to be sounded, the trumpet to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery, the mysterion of God would be finished, fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter, and I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. It was pretty clear that the angel, shining like the sun with a rainbow over his head and a voice like a lion, is the angel of Yahweh, the word of God, who is Jesus, word of God, the scroll must also contain the word of God in some form. Last time we conjectured that the scroll 
must be that mystery of God in some way, or, or a description of the mystery, the mysterion. Mysterion is this word that's used 27 times in the New Testament, mostly by St. Paul, who used it rather extensively in his letters to the churches in Asia Minor, the churches to whom the revelation is being sent. Uh, so last time we looked at this slide, the mystery of God. We saw that the mystery of God, according to Scripture, is at least that faith in us is like Christ miraculously, mysteriously rising from the dead in us. So the new you, the real you, is actually Christ rising in you, Christ in you. And more than simply Christ in you, it's Christ hidden in all, uniting all things in himself, Ephesians 1, 7, the mystery of his will, Mysterion, to unite, to bring together under one head all things in Christ Jesus. And, and more than this, it not only will happen, in some mysterious and amazing way, it truly has happened. It is finished. The kingdom of God is at hand. You have only to like, wake up to the revelation of Jesus the good news. Last time we said that we all tend to view the world like, like this. We see six billion souls only bound together by covenants of self-interest called tribes and cities, countries, and sometimes churches. That is human governments, the principalities and powers of this world. But God sees the world like this. Six billion souls bound together by a covenant of self-sacrifice called love that is life. And Scripture says the life is in the blood, like air is in your blood, or oxygen, or spirit is in your blood. So the six billion souls are like six billion cells bound together in a body, the body of Christ. This is God's Word. This is God's judgment, which is also called reality. <laughs> so when you look at the world, what do you see? Reality or, or illusion? Do you see this? Billions of souls that all belong to each other in a communion of love that is life? Or maybe do you see this? Billions of souls all competing with each other for life, which is actually death. If you see this, I think you will also soon begin to see this. Isolation from the life of love. I think we loosely call this hell. And you see, it's not only hell for you, the isolated one, <laughs> it's kind of hell for the head too, isn't it? No wonder he came to seek and to save the lost. They are his body. So Jesus says, repent, repent. It doesn't mean try harder. It means wake up to reality, to this mystery, the mystery of God. This is the good news, euangelia in Greek, the gospel. So often people will say to me, okay, great got it. The gospel. I, I got it. What now? <laughs> what, am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do? Often they don't ask me th this question. I hear it through the grapevine. I understand that God loves me and God loves everyone and God is uniting all things in himself, but, but what now? <laughs> I wish Peter would tell me what to do. What now? I heard the question again last week. Found it rather frustrating. So I went home and wrote out the answer. Took me about 10 minutes. I found it frustrating because you see, I too constantly ask this question, what now? And, and yet, in a way, I think I, I do know the answer. So I wrote it out and I, and I made copies, which I'm now handing out to you. So I have assistance, right? My, wife and others, would you go quickly hand these out? Now, um, everybody needs to get one. You can see it up there on the screen. Uh, you don't have to read all of this right now, okay? But you need to take it home with you 
and you can refer to it later. I'm going to start talking about it now, so I want you to pay attention to me now. You can glance down at it now, but, but, don't, but don't read it, okay? Um, I need to say this is, this is not a trick, okay? This is what you must do. This is, the what, this is what you must do. At the top, you'll see the question. You see it on the screen up there on the left. What now? The answer is basically uh, in the two bold lines uh, below. Roman number one, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Roman numeral two, you will love your neighbor as yourself. If you ask the question, well then what does that really mean? What does that look like? It's detailed in the 10 commandments listed under Roman numerals one and two. I paraphrase them as follows. Number one, you will worship nothing but Yahweh. Not your success, not your money, not your country, not your football team, not yourself. Number two, you will not fashion Yahweh in your own image. That is, you will not make him look like yourself in your own mind or your, per, your perspective, your speech. Number three, you will not use the name of Yahweh to serve your own ego. That's what it is to take the name of God in vain. It's not a two-word curse word anyway. Number four, you will rest because you know that Yahweh is your creator. Number five, you will honor your mom and dad. Number six, you will not murder. Anger can be murdered. Number seven, you will not commit adultery. Desire can be adultery. Number eight, you will not steal. Your life is not your own. Even your life is not your own. You don't belong to you. Number nine, you will not lie about your neighbor. It's truth, you see, that binds us all together. Number 10, you will not desire what belongs to your neighbor. Now, if you say, okay, okay, I got that. I got that. I heard that before, but get practical. I've tried to spell it with a few practical statements like, like this one. Stay married okay rejoice that your neighbor has more stuff than you I've also listed a section called also this is by no means exhaustive but it includes stuff like this make sandwiches for homeless people visit the sick and the hurting in prisons and in hospitals pray for them pray for people that need healing people people that are suffering pray for people that are depressed if you want to do this with other people start a program and we'll help you. That's what a church is. We'll, we'll, it's not what a church is, but that's the kind of stuff the church does. We'll help you. Now, listen, this is not a trick. This is what you really must do. You must love. At the bottom on the back side, you'll see there's a section where I, where I say, please note. And then I wrote this. You must do all of these things from the heart. You will do them because you want to do them, not under compulsion, not because you gain this knowledge of good and evil by taking it from a list for the purpose of making yourself in the image of God. To do so is to crucify love rather than live the life of love. Now it is probably important to also tell you that the thing you're holding in your hand is called the law. When St. Paul speaks about the law, He's not just speaking about the Mosaic law. He talks about it being even written on the hearts of Gentiles. He's not just talking about the Mosaic law. He's not talking about just the ritual law. He's talking about any law. And he writes this, no one will be justified, that means made right, by works of the law. That's Galatians 3.11. Actually, anyone that relies on works of the law is, quote, under a curse, Galatians 3.10. It's not that the law is bad, it's good. That's Romans 7 and 1 Timothy 1. But attempting to justify yourself before God with the knowledge of good and evil is the very origin of sin. That's Genesis chapter 2. So taking more law to justify yourself is only to increase the trespass. That's Romans chapter 5. If, if you try to do the list in order to justify yourself, you'll, you'll end up competing with your neighbor rather than loving your neighbor. You'll actually hate your neighbor and end up hating God and his list. And do you know what the list is? <laughs> the list is a description of the will of God. And Jesus is the will of God in flesh. And so you see, it's no wonder that it was the Pharisees who most wanted to crucify Jesus. The Pharisees were all about making lists in order to clarify the law of Moses so that they could all do the things on the list to justify themselves and so save themselves from God. 
They believed that their will was salvation. And so they crucified God is salvation, who came to save them from their will. That's sin. But like I said, I really mean this. It's not a trick. You really must do these things on the list. In other words, love is not an option. It's the will of God. It's the word of God. It's the commandment of God. Actually, it is God. God is love. So what now? Well, the commandment of God is to live the life of God without trying because it's your nature. The very desire of your heart. You must do that. Now it's probably important to notice one other thing here in our text. When the angel of Yahweh hands the scroll to John, he does not say, read it and do it. In the Old Testament, he did say that to Moses, if you remember. Read it and be careful to do everything in the law. He said that to Moses and the Israelites, and it killed them. <laughs> and it, it, it killed It killed him as well. It killed the Israelites and it killed the angel of Yahweh in flesh. They crucified him on a tree outside the walls of Jerusalem. The angel doesn't say read it. The angel says eat it. 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 I just want you to remember Okay, that the angel says, says, eat it. I think that means that the gospel is less like a list and, and kind of more, more like this. A nice, juicy cheeseburger. When I preach, it's, it's like I'm saying, here's the gospel. And if you say, What now? The answer is, eat it. Eat it, eat it. Open up your mouth and feed it. Maybe say, okay. God, that's cute. I got it. But Peter, uh, what does that mean? Someone might say, well, okay, I get what it means. It means apply it to, to, to your life. Apply it to yourself. Is that correct? No, that's, I don't think that's right. And yet, um, that's what my, my kids, my kids used to do that. And you know what we'd say to them? We'd say, stop playing with your food. We'd say, stop playing with your food. I mean, they'd have it all over their face. You'd go, open up your mouth and, and eat it. Maybe say, okay, okay, I got it. Eat it. I, 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 un, I, un, I, I, I think I understand what you're saying, but, but to tell you the truth, Peter, I, I don't understand. I, I, don't, I don't understand it. Well, of course you don't. It's a mystery. Christ in you, rising from the dead in you, redeeming all creation in a communion of love that is eternal life is is a mystery. You don't have to understand it. You have to eat it. Eat it. No one fully understands a cheeseburger. Did you know that? And I don't consciously apply a cheeseburger to my life. I don't think, oh, come on now. Break down those proteins 
amino acids, assimilate them through the cell wall, and need some more riboflavin. Niacin, come on. I don't consciously do that. I don't try to apply the cheeseburger. I just enjoy the cheeseburger, ingest the cheeseburger. I trust the cheeseburger. And unconsciously, mysteriously, the cheeseburger is applied to my life. You know, a five-year-old can often digest a cheeseburger better than than a 60-year-old that has uh, advanced degrees in physiology and biology and medicine. In the same way, we're to enter the the kingdom as children, not not as Pharisees. A shepherd doesn't feed his sheep in order that the sheep will uh, regurgitate their feet up up on his feet and say, look, aren't you proud of me? I ate my dinner. But that's what a Pharisee does. He ingests the law to regurgitate the law and say, look, God, look, everyone, I I ate my dinner. The shepherd wants you to ingest and digest the food and turn it into milk and wool and maybe more sheep. The angel with the scroll does not say read it and do it. The angel says eat it and prophesy. Now prophecy is obviously something that you cannot simply will to do or understand. It's not something that you can simply will to do. Prophecy is a proclamation of what God wills to do and does do. Prophecy is ingesting, digesting, and then manifesting a mystery. Revelation 19, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. To testify to Jesus is to prophesy a mystery. More than that, your life is to be a testimony of Jesus. Actually, the manifestation of Jesus, the body of Jesus, the will of God in your flesh. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. That's the list. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. You see, he fulfills it in you. Jesus is like a cheeseburger. And he fulfills the law in, in you, he, fulf- he fulfills it, fully fulfills it. If, if you try to fulfill it without ingesting it, it can kill you. I mean, you might say to me, okay, Peter, what can I expect from this cheeseburger that you're serving me? And I might say, well, gosh, there's about 500 calories in that cheeseburger. I mean, you could like walk a couple miles and do 20, 30 push-ups. Well, if you walked and did the push-ups but never ate the cheeseburger, eventually you'd starve. Likewise, if you ingest it and don't digest it but regurgitate it for all to see, it will eventually kill you. And in the meantime, make you sick and make everyone around you sick because that's just gross. It's gross. You won't be a testimony to Jesus. You'll be a lie about Jesus. A whitewashed tomb, a hypocrite. You may say Jesus, Jesus, but you won't be a testimony to Jesus. You'll be a testimony to what? Yourself. Your ego. Your whitewashed tomb. You'll say Jesus, that is God is salvation. That's what it means. But you'll testify to to Mises. Me is salvation. The imitation Christ. That, by the way, is the antichrist. You won't be a testimony to, to this. Billions of souls all blessing each other in a communion of love that is life. The gospel, you'll be a testimony to this. Dividing walls of hostility. The principalities and powers of this world. Cancer, but worse than cancer. A lie about the Christ that keeps other people away from the Christ. To eat the scroll is to believe the gospel. You can't live the good news until and unless you you believe the good news. Believing that God loves some and endlessly tortures others is not the gospel. It's not the good news. You see, the entire what now, the entire what now is love. And we love our enemies because God loves his enemies. We love all because God loves all. We love because he first loved 
us, writes, writes John in 1 John. We love because we believe the gospel. So, so how do you know if you're doing it? How do you know if you've believed the gospel? Well, how do you know if you've eaten a cheeseburger? Now, there can be a variety of answers to this question, depending on your physiology and the quality of the cheeseburger, but assuming it's a quality cheeseburger and you're in relatively healthy shape, you'll find in yourself the ability and the desire to do things that you couldn't have done otherwise. Like maybe take a walk for a mile or two and and do some push-ups, or perhaps love your enemies. If it's the gospel cheeseburger. In other words, if you believe the gospel, the list that I gave you will like just kind of start to happen. Unconsciously, non-self-consciously, and joyfully happen. So you see, the list is good. The list has a purpose. The law has a purpose. It, what, what does it tell you? It tells you that you need a cheeseburger. And it tells you when you need to eat the cheeseburger. So look at the list, and and if you think to yourself, wow, this list really doesn't describe me, well, don't simply try to do the list, because that'll just turn you into a walking lie, gross everyone out, and eventually kill you. Don't simply try to do the list. Eat the cheeseburger, the gospel cheeseburger. See, the solution to the problem How do I do this list? The solution is not your will. The solution is God's will. The problem is your will. The power is not in your will. The power is in God's will. God's will that actually then becomes your flesh. God's will is God's word, and God's word is living and active. We always think those things are like metaphors. I don't think it's a metaphor. God's word is living and active. God's word is the promised seed that's implanted in the soil of your heart. God's word rides a white horse and swings a sword in Revelation 19, conquering all flesh. God's word is Jesus. The good news is the mystery named Jesus. In many churches, good news has subtly changed into good advice, writes theologian N.T. Wright. Here's how to live, they say. Here's how to pray. Here are techniques for helping you become a better Christian, a better person, a better wife or husband. And in particular, here's how to make sure you're on the right track for what happens after death. Take this advice, say this prayer, and you'll be saved. And then he writes, this is advice, not news. The whole point of advice is to get you to do something in order to get a desired result. Now, there's nothing wrong with good advice. We all need it. But it isn't the same thing as news. Jesus and his first followers were all about the news. Perhaps you recognize uh, this picture. We did not win the war because this sailor kissed this nurse. This sailor kissed this nurse because he just heard the news. (laughs) We won the war! That's good news. The gospel's good news. We won the war. The lamb on the throne has conquered all things. Every sermon is to be that news. And you see, that news changes you. It it changes you. Some, Some time ago, a British magazine published a letter in which a man complained about the futility of preaching. Now, believe me, I understand this complaint because I constantly complain to God about the futility of preaching. Honestly. A few years ago, he kind of miraculously told me that I wasn't to concern myself with that anymore. He told me through Ezekiel chapter 2 that I was to eat the scroll and speak what was on the scroll regardless of consequences. That it would be bitter in my stomach and sweet on on my, my lips, but that was my job. So anyway, I understand this guy's complaint. He wrote into the magazine, and, and they, published his, they published his letter. He claimed that he had spent 30 years listening to sermons, about 3,000 in all, and he couldn't remember a one of them. Other people wrote back in response. One man wrote this. I've been married for 30 years. During that time, I've eaten 32,850 meals, mostly my wife's cooking. Suddenly, I've discovered I cannot remember the menu of a single meal. And yet I have the distinct impression that without them, I would have starved to death long ago. 
You know, the gospel comes to you in many different forms, many, many more forms than just simply a sermon, but I hope you get the point. And if you don't get the point of this sermon, maybe you can just remember this. Just eat it, eat it. Don't you make me repeat it. Eat it. And, and I think that's the point of the revelation. John is told to eat the scroll, and then, then, then John sends a scroll called the Revelation of Jesus. He sends it to the seven churches. You remember that they all face a variety of challenges, from apathy to pornea and idolatry to torture and martyrdom. So the answer to what now is going to look different in each of those seven churches, and yet the prescription for each of those seven churches is exactly the same. It's the Revelation of Jesus. It was to gather together and read the revelation and believe the revelation, the good news that the Lamb on the throne has conquered all things. That's the gospel. Now, hold that thought. Meditate on the cheeseburger. And let's keep reading. We'll explain more of this next week. I just want to connect a few points before we're done. 11 verse 1. Few, a few dots to finish the picture. 11 one, John, John continues. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told to rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, the Gentiles, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. That's re- Repentance. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky and no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies, in Greek it's body, singular, their dead body, will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies, in Greek, dead body, and refuse to let them, bodies, plural now, be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. Then they heard, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Wild. At the start of that, John is told to measure the temple. In the Gospel of John, Jesus talks as if there are two temples and yet somehow one temple, in the same way that Paul would talk about the fact that there are like two men and yet one man, and that man or that woman is you, the new man and the the old man and the new man. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. In Revelation 21, 16, John actually gives us the measurements of the temple. Because you see, the temple is the new Jerusalem, And as you know, the new Jerusalem is Christ's bride, and Christ's bride is his very, it's his very body. And and see, that's the temple that he raises up in the days of the seventh call. Well, anyway, these are the measurements. It's 12,000 stadia on each side. That's the largest denomination, 1,000, times 12 to the third third power, third dimension. That's literally 1,380 miles on a side, or 2,628,072,000 cubic miles. I mean, this is a big body, the, the body of Christ. 
It's the sanctuary. The sanctuary in the temple was shaped like a cube. It's the sanctuary that is the new Jerusalem coming down. She's coming down now, and her gates are always open. The outer court is given over to the Gentiles, and in the end, they stream into the city. Ezekiel and Zechariah see, and they do a similar thing. In Zechariah, the Lord says this, Jerusalem will be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and animals in it, and I will be to her a wall of fire all around and the glory in her midst. The new Jerusalem coming down is the body of Christ rising in this world, seeking and saving the lost through the very wounds of, of Jesus, our Lord. You are that body and individually members thereof. You each manifest the will of God in a unique and individual way. Just as each part of my body manifests my will in a unique and individual way. St. Augustine recounts that originally he was utterly terrified to take the body of Christ at communion. And then he heard a voice and it said this, I'm food. Eat me. You will not change me into yourself, but you will be changed into me. You don't apply Jesus to your life. Jesus applies you to his life. When we digest Jesus, he digests us and turns us into himself, his body, each a unique and indispensable testimony of, of Jesus. If I was better at graphic arts, I would have made each of those blue dots a unique and indispensable body part, like, but I'm not that, that good at it. So hopefully you get the idea. Maybe this will help. I have four kids. Genetically, they are each my body and Susan's body and a testimony to our love. Coleman is standing next to me in this uh, picture. He's engaged, working at the Grand Canyon, and Coleman just accepted a fellowship for doctoral work at the Utah State University on geotectonics. I mean, just a few years ago, we were worried he wouldn't get out of high school. John's standing next to Coleman. He's studying counseling and psychology at the Seattle School of Theology. Elizabeth is engaged to Francisco, teaching English and living in Chile. Becky works at the Museum of Nature and Science, has a degree in anthropology, and wants to study archaeology in graduate school. And I love um, each of them so much. It's just hard to even look at their pictures. Each is absolutely wonderful and unique. And this is my point. They are each so very different. And yet each one of them ate the exact same cheeseburgers. This is a McDouble. They used to always say to me, Dad, can we go out to dinner? And I would say, we can go out to dinner as long as you order from the dollar menu. And that meant McDoubles. One vacation, seriously, in Arizona, I think we ate McDoubles breakfast, lunch, and dinner for 10 days in a row. Same cheeseburger, entirely different results. Likewise, we all ingest one spiritual food, says Paul, and yet may have very different lists of, of what now. At the end of the list I gave you just before the note, you'll notice that I wrote this. Ask the Lord what now. Ask him, what do you want me to do now? You see, I think that's a pretty good question. It's just that I really can't answer it for you. But Jesus is answering it for you all the time. And get this. He's answering it for you not as a list, but as a new desire rising in your heart right now where eternity touches time. So anyway, I can give my kids a cheeseburger, but I cannot tell Coleman, for instance, take this cheeseburger and turn it into a PhD in geotectonics. 
Or Jonathan, you eat this cheeseburger and change it into some, some wisdom for a man who's tempted to kill himself sitting on your couch in your counseling practice. Likewise, I can preach the gospel, but I can't digest it and apply it to you. Not even you can do that. But Jesus can, and Jesus does when you eat it. There was a time when I felt like I could apply the gospel to you. Seriously. It felt that way. A a time when I could come up with programs for people and make them work. In fact, I was kind of even known for that. A program is a list of things to do. But for the last 10 years, every program that I create seems to miraculously, and I mean miraculously, fail. And yet someone will eat the cheeseburger and say something like this to me. Hey, Peter, could we start a church downtown? And I'll say, I guess. And here we are. Hey, Peter, can I help us buy the old Zen center on Spear? And I say, I guess. And instead of folding like I thought we were going to do, what the heck, here we are. Hey, can I post sermons on Facebook? I guess. And wow, it really worked. Hey, can I take sermons and turn them into devotionals? And wow, like 60, 80,000 likes on one devotional. Crazy. Hey, can we host a conference? Some guy in Texas says, I, I guess. And, and hunt people coming from around the world that you, that you serve, that you minister to. Hey, can we preach this in the Philippines? And wow, all sorts of new churches. And get this. A literal hamburger factory paid for by you. The churches in the village supporting themselves by selling cheeseburgers. And really, you know, it's always been this way when I reflect upon it. The rest was an illusion. <laughs> this week, I've, I found this website. I hadn't looked at it in years, but it's healingwaters.org. This is an amazing, amazing ministry that's been profiled in Christianity today. They distribute water and uh, the gospel through indigenous churches all around the world. They work in 14 countries, have 292 projects, and distribute 317,183 liters of clean drinking water a day. That is pretty amazing. What now? You know how it started? 25 years ago, this guy said to me, hey, Peter, could we partner with a poor church in the Dominican Republic? And I said, I guess. For three years, everybody in church, they would ask, what now? I don't don't know. After three years, my dad said to my confused friend Tom, Hey, Tom, maybe you and Dana ought to go live in the Dominican Republic for a year. So Tom did, and the whole time he asked, what now? He would email me and go, what now? I'd go, I, I, don't, I don't know. He came back, a hurricane hit the DR, and so we sent Tom and some others back to the DR to help distribute an offering that, that we took. Uh, in the DR, folks listened to Tom, so he could set up programs and things like that. They listened to him because they, they, trusted, they, 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 trusted, they trusted Tom. One of those that went with Tom was Steve Wilner. He'd been doing some maintenance work for the church and for some reason decided to go on the trip. One day he said, hey, I could build those guys a water purification system. <laughs> it's a picture of Steve from our Holiday in Hell video. He's sitting here in the, in the third row. Bet you didn't know that about Steve. Because Steve is a a pretty humble guy. Well, the whole thing, 317,183 liters of clean drinking water a day to the poorest of the poor, it happened because Steve ate the cheeseburger. And one day Jesus and Steve said, hey, I'd like to give my neighbors a drink of cold water. A 
And now those are probably silly and minor examples because no one can measure the power of a kiss on the cheek of a child that hates himself. No one can measure the power of a word spoken to, to someone that is ready to just give up or the smile on your face when you see a friend. No one can measure that except Jesus who writes the story and the list. Well, anyway, John is told to, number one, eat the scroll and prophesy. And to prophesy is to testify to Jesus. Uh, Number uh, two, he's told to examine the body of Jesus. John, you go measure it. Number three, we meet two weird and wild witnesses. Witnesses testify. They prophesy, they testify for 1,260 days, which is 42 months, the same time that is given to the Gentiles to trample the outer courts of, of 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 the temple in the city. That's also three and a half years. In biblical lingo, that's times, times, and half a time, which carries all sorts of biblical allusions. That's the duration duration of Christ's bodily ministry on this earth. That's the amount of time that Elijah prophesied and stopped the rain. That's the amount of time until the end of days in Daniel 9. That's the amount of time Antioch Epiphanes defiles the temple. Uh, The Romans laid siege to Jerusalem, and Nero persecuted the, the body of Christ, the church. And three and a half is a broken Seven, it's the imperfect and broken time in which we, the church, live and are testified to Jesus in the days of the seventh trumpet call. The two witnesses are two olive trees, like those in the book of Zechariah, and two lampstands. In in the Revelation, lampstands are churches. They're referred to as one body, and yet they are obviously two persons, at least two persons. They both testify to Jesus, but in a different way. And that's really good because over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament and in the two, it states nothing shall be established except on the testimony of two witnesses. So you need to hear, see, you see, you need to hear Peter Hyatt yap about Jesus in the sermon and you need to get a drink of cold water from Steve Wilner. And each of you is a living and indispensable witness to the gospel, the good news of Jesus the Christ, unique and an incarnate witness. These two witnesses have powers like Moses and Elijah who appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus doing what? Bearing witness to Jesus. Paul writes, the law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God, which is Jesus. Moses is a picture of the law. Elijah is a picture of the prophets. I find it fascinating that the law is also a prophecy. And now this is listed on your sheet. You you can read this. It's in bold. You can read it later. But this is the whole law. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And you will love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that. The word of God in flesh, the will of God in flesh, who creates all things and is the truth. He says to you, you will love. You will be made in the image of God. You know, if you take that word as a law, it will kill you. It will kill you or it will reveal that you are already dead. But then if you receive it as a gift, as the prophecy that it is, it will give you life. You're going to love. You will love. Don't lose courage. You will love. Do you understand? Love dies and rises in the temple of your heart. God is love. And you are his body. The angel testified, it will be sweet on your lips, bitter in your stomach, and then sweet on your lips once again. Oh, and that's true, isn't it? Just look at John, the the son of thunder, who became the beloved disciple, the apostle of love. 
Just look at Peter, the coward. Do you know the story? How he digested the gospel on the night that he denied Jesus and he wept bitterly. That was bitter. That was bitter. And then he became Peter, the rock on whom the Lord built his church. Just look at Paul, the Pharisee, who became the apostle of grace to the Gentiles. Just look at a guy like John Newton, the slave trader, who wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Man, the gospel was bitter in his stomach but it sure was sweet on his lips. The gospel is the testament of God's grace in Christ Jesus our Lord. Digesting it will kill the old you and it will give birth to the new you. But if you don't eat it and digest it, well, the undigested gospel will just make everyone sick. You know, it's really rather strange that you can think about this and examine it, but Jesus really didn't leave many or, or barely any or if any rituals for, for us to follow. He didn't leave any programs. He didn't leave uh, any list of things for us to do. And... By the time he died, right before, all the disciples were just sitting around asking this one question. What now? And so Jesus took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Jesus, the Lamb of God standing on the throne, said, this is my body given to you. The throne, which was literally the law encased in the covenant of grace on which the high priest would sprinkle the blood of sacrifice. This is my body given to you. And then he said, eat it. And in the same manner, he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you, for the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' name, Believe the good news. Amen. And so, Lord God, we thank you that all is at rest. And we can rest because we know that you are the creator and you are the author of the story. And we are part of the story, and it's a good story, and you don't fail. I believe, Lord God. Help my unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. And so the angel handed John a scroll and told him to eat it. And I think the angel also hands you a scroll and tells you to eat it. And scholars debate exactly what's on the scroll. Uh, some say, well, it's the revelation. Some say it's the copy of the big scroll. Some say it's the Bible, whatever it is. It's somehow the, the Word of God, and it comes to us in a variety of ways, and this is, this is one way. Uh, people stress about this because they just read a page or two and think it's nothing but lists, but the lists are all contained in an incredible story, and the story is the story of God and humanity, God and the Adam, Ha'adam, uh, the eschatos Adam, and this story is also your story. So I hope you um, receive it. And eat it. I hope you believe the gospel. It's good news. In Jesus' name, amen.